you to remain standing and join me in prayer. At this point in our service, we come to God as a whole congregation. I will be leading us, but I invite you to uh, participate, not only just listen, but agree in your hearts as one church as we come and ask God to accomplish his ongoing work of making us as a church a people of disciples, followers of Jesus, who make other disciples. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you as a people, a group, a gathering identified by the fact that you have called us by the love that we just sang about. And so we thank you that we are a we, that we are even here this morning. We thank you for for coming, Jesus, to this earth and making disciples yourself and then telling them to continue the work. For if they had not done so, none of us would be here this morning. So God, we thank you for your work through your people in your church of drawing more people to yourself. We pray that you would continue and develop and advance that work here through us, the members of Harvest Community Church. Uh, That we would be a people, Father, who see and make space for other people, who clear uh, emotional bandwidth and time to invite others into our lives and to be on the journey of following you together. For how will people know how to become a disciple, your word tells us, unless they hear the truth of the gospel? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? God, as we walk together, help us to see one another and walk together. And help us to not only see one another, but walk in your word. God, we pray that that as a church, we would be a people who find your word, your message in the Bible, deeply sweet to our souls. God, that reading the Bible would not become a guilt or a duty, but a desperate pursuit of hearing from the God who knows us and loves us. God, I pray for our delight in sharing Scripture together as we walk with one another. And lastly, and definitely not least, we pray, God, for the, the presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst. God, we confess our sin to you, a sin that sometimes keeps us from you, sin that keeps us from pursuing you because we choose to pursue other things. Father, we, we confess that sin knowing that because of your love, we can be assured of your forgiveness and of your cleansing. And so in confessing it, we ask that you would change us as people change who we are and how we function. We pray for the, the leading of your Holy Spirit. We pray for his empowering presence in our lives to make us something that by ourselves without you, we would not be. This we ask so that more people can come to know and experience your love for our good and your glory. We pray that you would use us. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, This past summer, Amy and I celebrated 27 years of marriage. That was cool. That was for you. Um, She stuck with me for 27 years. (laughs) Uh, Which means it was almost 28 years ago now that I asked her to marry me. It was Christmas Eve of 1993. I remember the day well. We're coming up on that 28th anniversary. Now, when I was going into that... um, time with her, that proposal, uh, I was as sure as a person could be of what her answer was going to be before I asked the question. 
I mean, after all, do you think I would really ask that kind of a question without knowing what the answer is going to be? <laughs> My ego is way too fragile for that. Um, and actually, she was pretty sure I was going to propose to her that night. Um, in fact, she had given me a deadline. If I didn't propose to her that night, she was going <laughs> to pitch me overboard. That's not quite true, but actually, that's not far from the truth. She actually gave me till the following Valentine's Day. Um, <laughs> she said, you've got two months, and if we don't seal this deal, then you go need to go find somebody else, right? I'm not going to wait for you forever. Um, so she kind of knew it was coming too, because you see, we'd gotten to that point in our relationship. We had known each other for seven years at that point. We had been exclusively dating each other for three or three and a half and so at some point, you know, a year or two before this, we had sort of passed that point where the relationship was kind of in the if stage, like, is this going to be a thing, to more of like the when stage. Like we had both decided we're going to get married, it's just a question of when. And so there it was, that led us up to the time where we finally decided this is the time that we're going to do it. So um, knowing that she wasn't going to be really surprised by the question and knowing that I wasn't, Lord willing, going to be surprised by her answer, because I was so confident, um, I didn't make a big deal out of that. I just called her one day and said, hey, you want to get hitched? Okay, most of what I just told you is true. <laughs> except as my lovely wife just almost came up out of her seat to correct me, which doesn't happen often when I preach, so that's a bad sign for me. Uh, <laughs> um, almost all of that was true except the last part. Everything I described about our relationship was true, but uh, that didn't lead me to not make a big deal out of it. Actually, I still planned it, um, I had asked her parents a number of days before that uh, for their blessing on this relationship, and so I'd gone over to their house, and she was supposed to meet me there for something we were doing, so I showed up like way early and tried to keep it from her. Like, I mean, it was not a very well-kept secret. She could figure out what was going on, right? But I did it anyway, and um, kept it a secret uh, as best I could. I still wrote her a letter. I still asked her the question. I still brought my guitar over and hid the ring in a guitar case so she wouldn't know where it was because I couldn't like stick it in a pocket without it being obvious, you know, and still pulled out the ring, still asked the question. Because this is a huge deal, right? This is a huge deal. My confidence in her saying yes didn't make me complacent it actually made me work in anticipation toward receiving this beautiful lady's pledge for life of devotion to me. That didn't make me complacent. And when I kind of lied a minute ago and said it did, you all were like, what a horrible person. Like, I used to think highly of you, and that changed, <laughs> right? Because something that beautiful, a gift given that is that beautiful, doesn't make us complacent. It makes us eager to experience it. And what we're going to talk about this morning from 1 John chapter 3 in the New Testament is that God similarly holds out a prize that all Christians are guaranteed to experience one day. There's no question of whether or not this is going to happen. And he does that, he holds out that prize in order to motivate us to run hard after him. You see, at this stage in the life of our church, we've been focusing this fall with kind of a fresh energy on the call of God, on us as a church, to be disciples who make disciples. That's the language of the New Testament. What that means in kind of just man on the street...
regular English is um, helping other people find and follow Jesus. That's what discipling is, being followers of Jesus who help other people find him and follow him as well. And because we've been doing this for a while, today's a big day because today we're going to wrap up this series. This is the final sermon in this particular series. And so let me just briefly kind of recap where we've been. Many of you have been with us through this series from the beginning. If you're newer to Harvest, maybe you just picked it up somewhere in the middle. Briefly, kind of here's where we've been. We spent three Sundays talking about what this sort of discipling thing is. We saw from the Bible that, like, if you're a Christian, as for us as a church, this is our calling. This is the marching orders God has given us. It's not a request, it's not a suggestion, it's not an option. It's like, this is what I'm calling you to do. That's what God tells us. So we talked about, okay, then what is discipling? We looked at the stages of the journey, the different growth stages that people go through in coming to find Jesus and then functioning as spiritual infants, as it were, just getting to know the basics and then becoming more of a spiritual child who's growing and is excited but is still focused on what I'm learning and then moving into that sort of spiritual adulthood where I'm catching a vision that my life is about more than just me, it's about God. God's kingdom, and finally becoming what we might call a spiritual parent, somebody who invests in other people to help them become disciples too. We talked about all of those stages and the motivations the Bible gives us to walk that journey because honestly, making disciples is costly. Uh, It costs you time, it costs you energy, sometimes it costs you money. You have to believe in it passionately to live a life that's devoted to it. The Bible helps us with all those things. Then for the last three Sundays, we shifted gears and we said, okay, let's be much more practical. Rather than talking about the what and the why, how does this work? And we've seen that God has given us three major tools. His people, we need one another to imitate one another and be in community together. This is not a journey you walk alone. Christianity is a team sport. Secondly, we need God's word. The Bible contains everything that we need. So if we want to disciple one another, we have to meet each other over the Bible. The Bible has to be part of what's going on here as we wrestle through it together. Last but not least, this past Sunday, we talked about the need that we have for God's spirit to come and transform our hearts and to make us followers of Jesus. But you know what? There's one more thing. There's one more thing. That's where we've been. And we're going to end today talking about one more facet, one more tool, as it were, that God gives us to make disciples. And that is God's prize. So I'm calling it this morning. Not only God's people, God's word, God's spirit, we need to be involved in all those to make disciples, but we also need to embrace God's prize. What we're going to see today is that God's prize in Jesus sustains you on the path of discipleship. If you don't have the prize in your mind, you'll never last in the journey. God's prize in Jesus sustains you on the path of discipleship. So God, would you open our eyes now to see wondrous things in your word. This we ask for our good and your glory. Amen. I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, clear toward the end of your New Testaments. If you've got them open, flip or swipe if it's a digital version. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. That's our main text this morning. This passage of Scripture was written by John, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples who knew him well and lived with him and walked with him and learned from him and served him for several years and was among the disciples to whom Jesus originally said, go and make more disciples. John writes about this incredible prize and the impact that it has in our life in 1 John 3 when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I want us to see three things from this passage this morning. 
this prize that God hands us is like, you can think of it like a diamond, and it has multiple facets to it. It's one beautiful prize, one promised future, but there's at least three facets to it that we're going to see from this text this morning. The first facet we're going to look at is the astounding, astounding love that God has for us. And then we're going to see the new identity that God gives to us, and then we're going to see the certain future outcome he provides for us. All different facets of the same beautiful prize. We're just going to take it and spend a minute looking at each facet in turn. We start with this first one. The astounding love of God for us. Now, many of you know the New Testament was originally written in uh, the Roman Empire in the first century. It was written in the Greek language. It's been translated for us into modern English. Sometimes you lose a little bit of the impact and the force whenever you translate something. So when this verse, it's a great example. Um, In my Bible, the English Standard Version, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, which sounds like, you know, the beginning of an owner's manual for your VCR or something, right? (laughs) You lose a little bit of the force of what's going on here. That first word, see. Uh, Some other translations say, behold, exclamation point. Look. It is a forceful and strong command. Guys, stop the ship. The modern kind of translation of this, to make it more accurate, might be, check this out okay that's a loose paraphrase but that really is the force of what's being said here see behold wait stop you're like hey i know god loves me now i got to go on to others no 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 no. come check out the view you gotta come here you gotta stare at it gape at it be amazed soak in the rare beauty. Man, guys, you've never seen anything like this. That's what the Bible is telling us. Not just sort of a wake up, but wake up and look. Don't gloss this over. So what is it we're looking at? It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That little phrase, what kind, the type. Um, It originally was most often used in the first century to talk about things that came from a foreign country things that were exotic and rare because they're just not from around here, right? That's the phrase that John employs when he is telling us, stop and look at the love that God has for you. Right, in other words, it's almost like the Bible is saying, man, the love of God is totally foreign to anything that you and I know. Stop and look at this. You just don't find this kind of thing around here. This is not normal. The love of God does come from a foreign country, but it turns out it's not just another nation on the earth. It is a heavenly country. Literally, the Bible is saying, look at the otherworldly love of God. It just does not exist in this world. The most amazing, rapturous, exciting, joyful love you and I have ever experienced is not what God has for us. His love is better. It's different. You won't experience this anywhere else. Stop and look at that. What kind of love does God have for us? Probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, also written by the Apostle John says that God so loved the world, everybody, that he gave his only son 
so that whoever believes in his son might not perish but have eternal life. Why did God do that? Because of his love. Many parents would attest to the fact that they love their kids more than anything. One of the strongest parental impulses is to, if I had to, literally lay down my life to protect and preserve the lives of my kids. Many parents love their kids more than their own lives. God's love goes beyond that. He loves you and I so much that his own son, the second member of the Trinity, came to suffer and die so that you and I could be reunited with him. You don't find that kind of love anywhere. Look at that piece of art hanging on the wall. Let that soak in for you. John later captured Jesus' own words in chapter 15 of John's Gospel. When, I'll paraphrase this a little bit, Jesus said, no one has greater love than this, that you would lay down your life for the one loved. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. He sacrificed heaven to come to earth as a man and he did it for you. He then sacrificed that earthly, limited, suffering, painful, sleep-deprived, hungry, thirsty, limited life that was already a burden for an infinite God to become that finite and yet he even put that finite life on the line. When he was beaten, he was crucified, and he died. And he did that for you. See, if you receive that gift by laying down your pride and repenting of your self-reliant sin, your sins will be forgiven. It is simply a matter of receiving the work that Christ did. You can pray a sinner's prayer that simply says something like, God, I know I am a sinner. And I confess that to you. I admit that to you. I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross to pay for my sins, and I receive that gift. Please forgive me. Help me now to live completely for you. If that is where your heart is really at and you speak those words, the Bible says you will be saved if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved deceptively simple free gift that was actually extremely costly. But Christ paid the price for you and I. Look at the love of God. The deceptive simplicity of this gift sometimes makes it easy to overlook. Just recently, I received a note from a member of our church and I I asked if I could take her identity out and share the story. She said yes. She reminded me in this note that um, the anniversary of her baptism, which happened a few years ago, was coming up and that had just gotten her to reflect on her own journey. And I've been able to walk with this member of our church for many years and so that caused me to reflect a little bit on her journey too. She had long thought of herself as a Christian, having been exposed to the gospel as a teenager, but lived most of her life apart from really following Christ. I think if you had asked her when she was in her 30s or whatever, like, are you a Christian? Are you going to heaven? She'd have probably said yes. But a number of years ago, by God's providence, she landed here at Harvest. She started meeting people. She got plugged in, attending worship services, getting into what the Bible really says. This was all new for her. Learning how to pray with people, learning what it means to walk as a disciple of Jesus. 
As time went on, she clarified and affirmed her faith in Christ. She said, I want to join the church. We said, that's great. We'd love to have you become a member. To be a member, you have to be a Christian because that's what it means to be part of God's family. So let's talk about the gospel and let's talk about your repentance and let's talk about your baptism. And so we began going back through all of that and it led us right back to that prayer I just articulated a moment ago. We explained that. She said, yeah, you know, I, I believe all those things. Well, have you ever actually prayed that to God? Especially in the presence of other people. She said, well, not really. If you believe it, why don't you tell God right now? She said, okay. And so in my living room with my wife and I, she prayed out loud in the presence of other people for the first time, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you died for me. Forgive my sins. Help me follow you. We got done and said amen, and she went, wow. I was like, wow, what? She's like, well, on one hand, I've sort of always believed that stuff, but this is the first time I just committed to God and asked him to forgive my sins that way. Shortly after that, she was baptized here at Harvest. She's continued to travel further, step by step, down the path of maturing as a follower of Jesus, as a member of this church. That's being disciples who make disciples. God is now using her to impact and share with the lives of other people as she continues to grow. I hope that story encourages you. I hope it also points an important warning sign for us. It's easy to assume that I believe in Jesus, whatever that means, but until I have repented of my sins and embraced Christ and received Christ's forgiveness for me and gotten on the path of following him, the Bible says you're still on the outside looking in. Christ is inviting you in. Look at the love God has for you. Don't just write that off as something you believe. Receive it. Pursue Jesus. We're here to help you do that. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Look, the first facet of this gift is the astounding love that God has for us. Look at it. Let it motivate your heart. Let it produce the right and the only worthwhile response. But that's not the only facet of this gift. As great a prize as that is, John then sort of turns the diamond around a little bit and says, now let's look at another facet of this. And we see it at the end of verse 1. And this is the whole new identity that results from the astounding love of God. Verse 1 picks it up. He says, we are called children of God. That's an astounding love. But we actually are. We're not just called children of God. If you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you've actually become a child of God, which is amazing unto itself. He makes this interesting statement. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, referring to Jesus. You see, there's a clear point being made here. We've, we've actually been made children of God. That is, God brings repentant you into a new relationship with him, God Almighty. A relationship of perfect love and commitment like a parent to a child, not just a sovereign to subjects, although that's true. Not just the divine to his worshipers, although that's true too, but as a loving father to his daughters and his sons. That's unheard of. God does this when he knows everything you are and everything you've done. 
That is the astounding love of God. He's made you then a child of God when you repent. And so when he says the world doesn't know us he's, because it didn't know him, he's also saying you've got to understand to become a child of God means God actually picks you up and makes you a part of a new family. He gives you a new name. He adopts you. And he also then puts your life on a whole new path. We're like off the path of the world, off the path that people follow in their lives, off the path that we used to follow ourselves. We're now on a completely new and different path. Your life is now all about something totally different than what it was all about before. It's about becoming more like Jesus and carrying out his vision to make disciples. See, if we stop and think for a second about what the Bible is saying here, we, we might put it this way. In the Bible, there, there is no embracing Jesus as my Savior who forgives my sins without also embracing the fact that he is my King. He redefines my life. He writes my rules. He now has purchased me with his own blood. That's actually language in the Bible. I am now his. My life is not my own, for I was bought with a price, the Apostle Paul says in Scripture. My life now belongs to him. He directs the path. He directs the course. In fact, to be a Christian is to be on that different path. That path of now following Jesus, helping others do the same. Man, I've got to figure out what that means. I've got to get better and better at it. That's great, but that's the path I'm on if I'm a follower of Jesus because that is the Jesus path. There is no other Jesus path. Like one might think of a, you know, a swim team member who says, I want to be on the team. So you join the swim team, right? And then you show up for the first day of practice in your sweats. And the coach is like, go back in the locker room, put your suit on, get in the pool. Like, Why would I want to do that? cold. I just want to be on the team. What do you think it means to be on the team? (laughs) There is no on the team but not in the pool. That doesn't exist. You're either on the team and you're in the pool or you're out of the pool and you're out of the team. I mean, right? That's kind of how Christianity works. There is no I become a Christian and then I'll figure out if I really want to get about discipling people later. To be a Christian means to be on that path. God's prize is an astounding love, but it's also a new acceptance and it's a new identity, a new purpose in life. But there's one more thing. John turns the diamond one more time. Not only are you, are you loved more than, than you could ever imagine here, not only are you adopted as daughters and sons and given a whole new mission and purpose in life, but there's one more aspect that he talks about in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see that third facet? You hear it in the definiteness, I think that's a word, just go with it, of the language, right? He's talking here about a guaranteed end result a certain, sure outcome. What we will be, not might be or hope to be, definite, what we will be has not yet been revealed, 
But when we see him, certain, we shall be definite just like he is because we shall see him as he is. You see, what, what the Bible is talking about here is the moment you receive Jesus' sacrifice for you and get on the path of following him, that very moment, God's own Holy Spirit moves into your life and goes to work changing you, making you less like you and more like Jesus. He transforms us in how we think about things, how we see life, what we care about, and how we live. And the path of following Jesus is to learn to become more and more like him. We call that spiritual maturity through those different stages we discussed earlier. But notice the certainty of the language here in, in verse 2 of 1 John chapter 3. He's saying that process has a defined endpoint, and it is definite, it is certain, if you are a follower of Christ, that you will reach that endpoint. This process will culminate in you standing before God, face to face, with your holy creator, totally sinless like Jesus, God's own son, was when he lived his life here. This outcome is guaranteed because God is the one doing it. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, elsewhere in the Bible, he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There is a definite and sure outcome wherein you are transformed in your character to look more like Christ. There really isn't anything else that you can pursue in this life that is that sure and that significant. Despite the fact that many hopes and promises portray themselves as sure bets, we all know, we all learn sooner or later, that there is really no such thing in this world. You can invest in your career, right? I'm going to be the best whatever, doctor, lawyer, business person, contractor, I mean, whatever it is that I can possibly be. I'm going to reach the pinnacle of my career. I'm going to make everybody proud. I'm going to have a good, healthy retirement. I'm, I'm building everything to that day when I can finally have the life that I want to have. That can be a career or a life ambition and goal it is for many people. But for others, they don't think that far ahead. It's just like the kind of garden variety hedonism, right? I just want to live as much of the good life as I can while I'm here. The problem with all of these things is at the end, you still die. And then what will it have all meant? There's nothing certain. There's nothing lasting or definite about it. Many times people realize this, and so we redouble our efforts to say, okay, I'm going to build something that outlasts me. I'm going to live on longer than my life, or at least my influence will. You know, we see dictators and tyrants erecting statues of themselves that outlast the dictator themselves until it gets torn down in the next revolution. Right? It still doesn't last. People build wealth, they establish businesses, they found um, foundations, they establish foundations, all these kinds of things, you know, that, that last beyond them until the money runs out or 
somebody squanders it or... Maybe some people say, all right, I'm going to forget these human pursuits. I'm going to do something worthwhile. I'm going to devote myself to connecting with God. So I'm going to diligently follow whichever religious path you choose to follow. The Eightfold Path of Buddhism. I'm going to be diligent about practicing the five pillars of Islam in the hope that I will be one of those people fortunate enough to have 72 virgins in the end times. Or maybe you've embraced a cultural form of Christianity that functions just like Islam and Buddhism. I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to be a moral person. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to sing the songs and I'm going to check the boxes in the hope that when I get there someday, God will let me through the pearly gates and Peter will look me up on this little computer and say, you're in, right? Problem is, these kinds of religious systems exhaust us And there's never a guarantee that it will be enough because, you know, no matter how good and diligent a person you are, you can be better than everybody else you know. And there's still that niggling question, isn't there? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? All of these ambitions fail in the end. That's why... The Apostle John here in this passage is holding up a prize for us and saying, guys, dude, check this out. A certain future, sure outcome. Only in becoming a disciple of Jesus do you have certainty of a lasting, good future. And all this is what Christ has accomplished for you. So that's the prize. That's the prize. Recipients of astounding love made children of God himself with a certain end of holiness and joy in his presence. That's God's prize. So as we turn the corner, like, let's land this plane and think practically about it because what's, that, that sounds all wonderful, wonderful religious bible language. Maybe you expect to hear that in church. You know, fine. What difference does this really make? Well, that's where our passage lands here in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him, that is Jesus, purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. This is what the Bible refers to as hope. And when it uses that word, which it does regularly, it doesn't mean like, I believe in Jesus, so I hope I'm going to heaven, like I'm not sure. No, no, hope in the Bible means confidence in a future outcome. No matter how bad things get here, I'm confident that I will be received into heaven for all eternity because of Jesus. And when that confidence, that hope is driving you, it does something really interesting. It shapes your life now. That's what the Bible's saying. Like, if I have this hope, everything we've been saying so far is all this like future certainty and isn't that wonderful, but like, okay, someday it'll be great, I guess. How does that help me now? It helps you tremendously now because if I'm hoping in that, it shapes the whole course of my life right now, the choices that I make every day. When we hope in him, we purify ourselves as he is pure. In other words, you get on the path of finding and following Jesus. See, we said at the outset of our time this morning that God's prize in Jesus sustains you on the path of discipleship. The promised future then is what allows you to walk the road of discipling 
now. Hoping in that future produces action toward that future, not passivity. It kind of goes back to the night I asked my wife to marry me. Like, how crazy do you have to be to say, I'm sure she's going to say yes, so let's just not make a big deal out of it. Like, that's not what you do. You say the prize is worth it so much, it's worth making a big deal out of. It'd be a tragedy if we hear the grace of the gospel and the certainty of our future and we come away saying, well, if Jesus is going to save me, I guess I'm good. Let me just kind of go live the best life I can and he'll take care of it all when we get there. No, we, we haven't yet understood what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be in the game. I can think of that swimmer we talked about a minute ago. Let's, let's mix up the analogy a little bit. Let's say you're an NBA player. For most of us, that's going to be a stretch. Imagination, right? You're an NBA player, and before you retire, you're determined to get a championship ring, but you're on a backwater team, never going to make the finals, much less win. So you start talking to your agent, and um, let's go ahead and just say we're back in the 1990s, right? So Michael Jordan's winning everything. We're in the mid-90s, right? You're talking to your agent, you're like, get me on the Chicago Bulls roster. I want a ring before I retire, and I'm not going to be playing ball forever. Get me on the roster. Let's go ahead and say the agent swings the deal. Your team trades you, you got a new contract, you sign. You are now a member of the Chicago Bulls in the mid-90s. Hands down favorites to win the NBA title this next year. So, you show up for your first practice in street clothes. And you sit on the bench and you say, I'm going to watch MJ do his thing, this is awesome. What's coach going to do? How much are we paying you again? More than you probably deserve. Definitely more than <laughs> for you to just sit there. Get back in the locker room, put on your jersey, and get out here on the practice floor. Let's go ahead and say our hypothetical NBA player responds, practice. This is all hypothetical. No NBA player has ever said that before. Practice. Yeah, that sounds painful. I might break a sweat. That sounds exhausting. Why in the world would I want to do that? Man, coach, I'm just here for the ring, and I'm going to watch Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen go win one for me. I'm going to cheer them on. That's what I'm here to do. It's not going to work, is it? It's not how it works. You're on the team. You go put your jersey on, you get out there on the floor, and you play your part, even if you never get into a game. Even if you're just a practice player, you're part of the team, you want a ring, you've got to play your part. I wonder how many Christians approach their relationship with Jesus the same way. And I'm just here for the ring. And I'm going to go cheer Jesus on while he wins one for me. I mean, I'll do my part. I'll show up every Sunday. I'll cheer Jesus. Yay, Jesus. I think our Lord's response might be closer to, well, you're not getting a ring without me. That much is true. <laughs> uh, but I put you on the team, so suit up and get out on the court. Because that ring is certain, well, in my analogy, it's nothing is certain, right? But go with it. <laughs> because that outcome is guaranteed, get out there and work for it. What a joy to be part of the team and play your part in us winning. You finally got on the winning team, so suit up and play. 
Because you see, God's prize in Jesus sustains you on the path of making disciples. What a joy to rearrange my life around that calling to make room in my world for other people, to spend time learning how to get into Scripture with others and communicate to them the glorious truths that can change their life too. I'm going to take our last couple of minutes here to not just wrap up this sermon, but try to wrap up this whole series, which, guys, you've heard me talk about it enough. I mean, it's kind of an awkward thing because we're ending a sermon series today, but we are just by God's grace, beginning a conversation in our church that we hope continues indefinitely. This is not like we're done talking about discipling, now we're going to go talk about something else, time. This is like discipling is everything we're about as a church. So we're going to shift our gears a little bit next week, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to talk about thankfulness from Scripture, and then we're going to get into a a series of Advent messages through uh, December that celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But Don't ever let discipling get very far away from the side view or rear view mirrors. It is always there in the mirrors, okay? Whatever we're doing at any given moment. And so to do that, let me just draw this series to a close by asking each of us to consider a question. Where do you go from here? Where do you go from here? What is your next step? There could be you know, 200 answers to that question for 200 different people. I don't know. Here's some ways you might consider asking that. Maybe some of us need to come to know Jesus. Maybe like my friend earlier, you've spent a lot of time thinking of yourself as a religious person, but you have never committed your life to Christ, confessed your sins, and gotten on his team. Maybe it's time to do that. Or maybe you're with us this morning and you're like, I don't even know what this whole Jesus, salvation, repent, sin thing is all about. If that's you, you're in the right place. We are glad you're here. Let us help you see from the Bible who God is so that you can come into a relationship with him. Maybe that's your next step, is to actually pursue beginning a relationship with Jesus. Or perhaps you have a relationship with Jesus, but you realize, you know, if you're honest, throughout this series, you're like, I'm a Christian, but I've really not had my jersey on and I've not been out on the court. I've been up in the stands watching people play, Sometimes I've been out on the parking lot talking on my cell phone like I'm not even thinking about the game. Maybe there's, maybe there's sin in your life. You know, a pursuit of self-will, uh, pride. It can be so many different things that keep you from getting in the game. Maybe, maybe your next step is to have some serious conversation with God and with a couple trusted brothers and sisters in Christ and confess that sin. Let him cleanse you of it. Get back in the game. Maybe you need to learn how to share the gospel with somebody. The gospel is beautifully simple. But having somebody help you walk through how to actually share that with somebody else can be a tremendous help. It can demystify the process. A few of us are going to a meeting here in town where several pastors and church leaders are getting together to just talk about evangelism in our church. We're doing this the week after Thanksgiving. Uh, Maybe you should come with us. Put that on a communication card. Let us know. We'll let you know what's going on. Okay? Maybe you realize, man, I just I need to connect with others and start the discipling journey. I, I come to church all the time, I say hi to my friends, but like I'm not intentionally investing in relationships with people in the Bible so that they help me grow and I help them grow spiritually. 
Maybe I need to find somebody to say, hey, let's grab that book out at our Harvest Book Table in the atrium called One-to-One Bible Reading. We've got some more copies of that. We sold out of them a couple weeks ago. We've got more, so if you wanted a copy of that, it's available this morning. Grab that book. Let it give you some structure. No matter how well or poorly you think you know the Bible, that book will help you take the Bible, read it with somebody else. You'll both grow. Maybe it's time to take that step. Maybe it's time for you to serve to join one of the teams here at the church that makes the church happen. Most of those teams are invisible. You show up, the lights are on, things just run, the sound system's on, the music plays, but you only see the tip of the iceberg. So many people are teaching kids right now, making sure that the building is secure, helping set things up so that when people come, we're ready to go. Leading small groups. Maybe you need to pour into other people in some other way. Maybe you need to, I don't know, What would your next step be? Maybe I'll end with this. If you're looking at that last one and you say, I'm not sure any of those ones above or where I'm at or I'm not sure what to put in that blank, then maybe your next step is to ask God in prayer, God, what belongs in that blank? And I'm going to keep praying it and I'm going to keep asking you about that and I'm going to keep talking to other Christians in my life until I feel like I know what it is you want me to do. You see, it all starts with a conversation. It's actually one conversation with two different people. The first one is with God. God, how do I get on the path of following you more fully now, wherever I'm at in the journey? The second is to have the same conversation with other people. Remember those key tools? God's people is the first one. We need one another. Then we need God's word. That's where we get our answers. And then we need his spirit. So we talk to his spirit, we talk to his people, and we get together around God's word. And we simply dare to ask the question, God, what is my next step? So let me encourage you this morning, wherever you're at in this journey, to talk to somebody that you know who's a Christian, maybe maybe a friend, a family member, people in your small group, if you're in a group, a Bible study group of some kind, talk to them. What is your next step to follow Jesus? Or... You can write down on a connection card. Like if you're like, I don't, I don't really know people around here. I'm not sure I want to talk to anybody about that. You can talk to any one of our church leaders. We would love to. We have men and women who are ready to meet with you and help lead you to connect with God. Write that down on a connection card. Drop it in that offering box or at the Welcome Center. We'd be glad to give you a call this week and set up a time to talk. Lastly, you can come pray with us right after the service ends, which will be just in 15 or so short minutes, Okay. Uh, myself, Pastor Bruce, many of our other church leaders, men and women, will be right down here. We're just here to talk. We're here to pray for you. We're here to connect. Because our passion is to help all people, no matter where you're at, find and follow Jesus. What a prize. Dude, let's check it out together. I'll ask the music team to come back up here to lead us. And God, we want to come before you having, I trust, heard you speak more than me speak, because my speaking doesn't matter, except to the extent that it reflects your speaking. I pray, Father God, that your message would go out clearly. Holy Spirit, that you would move in each one of our hearts to give us, as you say in the Bible, ears to hear where we are at, what we need to do to connect more with you and experience the joy of the astounding love, the new identity and the certain future that you provided for us. I pray, God, that you would transform us, and through us would you transform many. Use this church to help people find the otherworldly hope that exists in your love. This we ask for your glory and our good.
Amen.